We are in Genesis 18, verses 16 through 33 today. One of the interesting things that we'll see about this, uh, and you're probably wondering, I've noticed that uh, people who've written uh, uh, commentaries on this or have preached through it like to skip this section because there's like Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, uh, fiery uh, sulfur from the sky and God's judgment, but we're not skipping it. So I think there's a lot to learn. I think all of Scripture tells us something about God. So we're going to dive in. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word in Genesis 18, starting on verse 16. Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham surely uh, shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you... Sweep, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole city for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord or oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten are found there. He answered. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Jerry Mitchell is an investigative reporter in Jackson, Mississippi. He's best known for reopening cases that had gone cold, leading even to leading to justice for for those who went many years without it. One such case was in the case of uh, the killing of civil rights leader Medgar Evers, where he investigated a man named Byron D. Lebeckwith. His story led to the reopening of the case and the conviction of D. Lebeckwith. 
He gained notoriety for bringing KKK members to justice, even in the face of threats from them. But one night, the widow of Vernon Damer came to him to find justice for the murder of her husband. Vernon Damer was a farmer and civil rights activist in the 60s, fighting for equality and justice, the right to vote. But on a cold January 10th night in 1966, the Klan, under orders of a man named Sam Bowers, the Grand Wizard of the White Knights of the KKK, firebombed his house. After getting his family safely out the back door, Vernon Damer grabbed his shotgun, ran through the flames, but never emerged from the front door to confront his killers. The flames seared his lungs, and he died. The next week, Vernon Damer's voter registration card came in the mail. One of the bombers was a name by the name of Billy Roy Pitts. He had dropped his gun in the midst of trying to get away and was apprehended. He never served a day in prison, though. It was said that he was in the Federal Witness Protection Program, but as Jerry Mitchell would find out, uh, find out it didn't even exist in 1966. Billy Roy Pitts was allowed to go free without any justice, so Jerry Mitchell tries to find him. He logs on to switchboard.com and finds a Billy Roy Pitts in Louisiana. He calls him, and for 10 minutes, Billy Roy Pitts is trying to find out, How'd you find me? My number's unlisted. I didn't give it to the phone company. They're not supposed to give it out. How'd you find me? And Jerry Mitchell responds, Well, you need to take that up with the phone company. Anyway, I'm here to talk to you about the, about the firebombing of Vernon Davis's house. Billy Roy Pitts would hang up the phone. He'd run away. But then after being chased down by the, by the officials and by people in the police, he ends up turning himself in. And so this, in his... Uh, his Billy Roy Pitts would talk, would talk to Jerry Mitchell and tell him the entire story and would implicate Samuel Bowers, the mastermind behind it all, and many others of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, including the defense attorney in the trial. 32 years after the death of Vernon Damer, Samuel Bowers would be sentenced to life in prison for his death. Justice came because one man heard the cry for justice. Samuel Bowers' position as the Grand, Ma Grand Wizard of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan would be passed to one Johnny Lee Clary. At the end of the trial, Billy Roy Pitts would walk out into the lobby where he would meet the widow of Vernon Damer. Billy Roy Pitts would turn his head down and ask for forgiveness and mercy. Vernon Damer's widow would forgive him. Mrs. Damer, old and frail, takes him in his arms and forgives him. And in her forgiveness, she absorbs all the justice that was deserved to Billy Roy Pitts. You see, much like the ears of Jerry Mitchell and the cries, the cries for justice come to the ears of Abraham. 
what is he going to do? Is he going to be one who just kind of turns on deaf ears? Or is he going to be a person who's been redeemed in relationship and reflects God's goodness into the world at this time? He's at a crossroads. So here, God broaches the subject through an internal dialogue, unless God likes to talk to Abraham in some kind of weird way. Shall I not tell Abraham? Abraham's probably like, I'm right here. And so it's, you know, it, it sounds like an internal dialogue. But it is written out so that it, to tell the, the audience what type of people they are to be and who they are to be as children of Abraham. And so that would include us because in Galatians 3, 7, it tells us that those of faith are the children of Abraham. So this verse teaches them and us what kind of people we're to be. What is our identity? We're to be people of justice. We're to be people of compassion, blessing, kindness, mercy, justice. A people who intercedes not just for our friends and our homies, but also for our enemies. We're to be people and they were to be people who reflected God's justice and kindness. And so this story encourages them to be the type of people who love even their enemies and call out for justice and live in righteous ways, live in ways according to God's ways in the world. You know, and so Jesus will even say in the Gospels and the Gospel of Matthew, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For it is, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God is gracious even to sinners. And we are to reflect that into the world. So we're at this hinge point in between seeing the goodness and hospitality of Abraham receiving God and his people and where, how we will see Sodom and Gomorrah uh, do violence to people, do violence to the men when God come, God's people, God's messengers come into the city. And the people who are reading this and hearing this are to compare these two types of people. Notice that they have to look down on the city of the plain. It's a rhetorical device used to get the reader to consider the way of life of those people. You know, are they going to be people of righteousness and justice who take the high ground? Or are they going to be like those lowly city people of the plain? No, they're supposed to be people who walk in the way of the Lord, as it says in verse 19, by doing righteousness and justice. So what kind of people are they to be? Who are we to be? Well, from reading the text, I could tell you that we are not to be people who readily wish, wish destruction on others. We are not to be people who dehumanize. And we're not to be people who look on others uh, and say, oh, those heartless conservatives trying to open up the economy too soon. Or to condemn those bleeding heart liberals who destroy the economy. Or... We're not supposed to sneer at those who are just weak sheep wearing masks everywhere. Nor are we to uh, dehumanize those who are awful non-mask wearing killers. You know, it, that, that isn't the what, what we're to do. 
This year is calling us to pray for sinners. Christians are to be in between people serving as a bridge in the gap. We've been told, like Abraham, that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Notice how far it goes in verses 19 through 20. I have chosen him that he may command, that means to teach his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So what is what are they to do? As Micah 6, 8 has said, I have told you, old man, what is good and what is right is to love justice and kindness. Do justice and love kindness. That's the type of people. And he says here, by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised to him, which is a restoration of all things that God through him would bless the world. So, What type of people are we to be? We're to be the refreshing cold cup of water in the fierce fire of debate. We are to be the people of warmth in the time of cold receptions. We ought to listen. We ought to investigate and plead for mercy over ignoring, dismissing, and wishing for the other's destruction, especially our political enemies. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't have opinions politically. That's not what I'm saying, that you should suspend them all and don't ever say anything. But rather, what I'm trying to say is that understand the political opinion of your opponent in such a way that they would know that that's actually their view. Don't mistreat them. Don't misspeak for them. Be kind. Listen well. You see... We are to be people to represent God and his actions in our interactions with others, even the people who would hate us. So do you represent God's desire for justice and mercy? Do you display his patience, his kindness, or do you rather display the actions and activities of the world, unrepentant, unremorseful for the wrong maybe you've participated in? Do you add to the political tribalism of our world? Do you add to the mudslinging? Do you add to the violence? That isn't the way of justice and righteousness. That's the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's that way. God is telling us, do it differently. Be a different type of people. Be the children of Abraham who take up the family mantle, who reflect God's goodness into the world. The way of faith, the way of Abraham in this text teaches us that God's people are chosen to be a blessing to others. You've been blessed to be a blessing, so therefore we're going to look at three things. We look at the cry for justice, we look at the advocate for justice, and we look at the God of justice. So the cry for justice, hearing that God punishes, doesn't really sit well with our Western world, does it? God punishes sin, and everyone's all like, uh, those sinners, not this sinner. That's what we always say, right? See, we're really comfortable with a God who maybe punishes Hitler, but then we're a little, like, weary whenever he would punish any other sin whatsoever. First off, we have a misunderstanding of what sin probably is. We probably look at sin, and we think of it just as a, uh, I don't know, like an oops, a little tiny stub of the toe of a baby at at home. But no, that isn't what a sin is. No, sin is actually cosmic rebellion going up against God himself. It's saying that I know better, my way is better, your ways are not. This is cosmic rebellion against his kingdom and the king himself. 
You see, if God didn't punish though this punish sin at all in the world, we would never be able to say that he's good, right? What would we do if a judge never ever punished punish the crimes of somebody? We'd vote him out. We're like, you're out of here. But yet, all of a sudden, when it comes to God, we don't want him ever to judge our sin. Don't, oh no, we, how, far be it from you, Lord, to ever judge me for my little, they're just tiny little sins. You would never do that. We are very happy with a merciful, loving God. But when it comes to punishing sins, no, we don't want that. And I would, I would gather to say it's mostly because you've been, lived in a protected world that we would say that. If we grew up maybe in South Africa and we were in a black community in South Africa and we've had family members carted off in injustice by police officers and killed and by the military killed in South Africa, we would want justice and we would want a God who judges sin rightly. And so we need one. And so just sin is crying out. Notice here in the verses, God says in verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom, so this is the, the judgments against them. We've entered into a courtroom. God is the judge and there's an outcry about sin. And how do we know that sin has an outcry? Why? It's because with every little kid that you've ever met, if you were to give one kid candy, then three other little kids would end up immediately screaming, Not fair! We've all done it. We've all been there. When we see something good happen to others, we're like, not fair. But then we also reverse it. We could see it the other way. When we see something terrible happen to really good people, what do we say in our heart? Not fair. And the same thing goes with all sorts of things in the world. We know that this world is not fair. We cry out for justice. We want things to be put right. And so when our loved ones get sick, when we see something defrauded by some powerful government or bank or entity, we scream out, not fair. Why? Because instinctually we know we have this sense of justice in us that needs to be solved. And so there's the outcry of justice against Sodom and Gomorrah. There are a bunch of people who are in cosmic rebellion against God himself, loving themselves, Themselves, doing what they have wanted, but they're not much different from you and me deep down into the core. The outcry has come to me, and he says God will go down and investigate to see whether they have done all together. And this word in the Hebrew is the same as whenever God says, uh, because the time, the sin of the Amorites is complete now. And so has it filled up? Has it gone out? Has it happened? And so God will judge them. He thoroughly investigates. And notice if you look in these verses, God says something, says uh, numerous things about hiding and seeing. Notice he says, and they looked down. Notice he says, uh, shall I hide? What I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely be this, seeing that he will be this type of person. See, God is the one who sees the sad and distressing things in the world. He sees how sin distorts all of humanity, how it's a violation of his righteousness, his way of living, and the way of justice, putting things to right. It is not the way it was meant to be. 
He sees it. He sees the injustice of your neighbor and he sees the injustice of your own heart. He isn't blind. Sin is a violation of this righteousness that he says here, by doing righteousness, Abraham, uh, and justice, God may bring about, bring to Abraham what he had promised, that God was going to work out through Abraham these things, through righteousness and justice, acting in accord to, the, to God's ways, according to his compassion, love, mercy, goodness, kindness. He wasn't defrauding people. He was living in a way that gave people their equal due as image bearers of the great king and God who created all things. That's the type of people they were to be. But Jesus, Jesus, we see though, that all this injustice of the world, all the big things, that fall under the umbrella of sin, all the abuse that maybe you've had or you've felt or you've seen, all the sickness, the way your body has stopped working the way it was meant to work. It's not the way it was meant to be. In a particular way, you yelled unfair. All the famine in the world, children going hungry, not fair. All the violence, all the cancer, all the illness, the COVID-19, they're all injustices to God's way of living and being in the world. You see, the one who was just, the one who actually lived righteous was Jesus. And he deserved all the blessings in the world and he deserved all the justice in the world. But what did he get? He got all the miscarriages of injustice, got a fraud, a sham of a, of a court. He ended up being sent away and killed in an unceremonious way, hung on a cross in a great miscarriage of justice so that you may have the true justice. Jesus warns religious people in Matthew 11 saying, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Talking about religious people who will ignore God's plea for them to place their faith in him and trust him that he brings equality and it is not through the work of our self-righteous hands and it's not through self-reliance, but rather we're to confess our sin and turn to Jesus, turn to him. So ask yourself this, what areas are you calling, for just, or, or calling out for justice in my areas of influence? Where do you work? Do you know one of the greatest things that you could do for justice in this world, to make things right, is to work hard every day, to love your neighbor, To love your neighbor just by working. Whether it be potting plants, managing others, cleaning toilets, wiping the rears of your children, you are bringing justice into the world in little ways. You are living out your vocation. Ask yourself what areas of calling are calling for justice in my areas of influence? How does my work bring justice and righteousness in the world? Also, we need to say this, because God sees, and he sees into our world. 
What do we need to admit that God sees? What needs to be reckoned with in our heart? What is the injustices? What's crying out for justice about us? We need to be real about those things. Maybe it's the way I talk down to my kids. Maybe it's the way I dismiss my spouse. Those are things where God sees them and he knows. But let's look at this advocate of justice. In verse 19, it says, I have chosen him or I have known him. I've established a relationship with him, is what it's saying, in order that he may be blessed to bless others. And that he is to teach and command his children that they are to carry this new way, this life of new creation, this redeemed way of being into the world. And so if you are in Christ, if you trust and you have placed your faith in him, Galatians says that you are, a, you are in Christ, that you live in a new way. You are a child of Abraham. First Corinthians will tell us that we're a new creation and we live in a new way. And so we are to join with Abraham to be advocates of justice justice. And so Abraham is to teach the ways of righteousness, which are God's ways, to his children. They are to be people of God who plead for justice by the way they treat others and the ways that they will call out injustice as being unjust. So when you see injustice, the people of God, the church, ought to stand up and say, that is unjust. We're to be, called, be, be people who call a spade a spade. We do not shrink back. We're to do it, though, of course, with grace and kindness, but we're to call it out, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. Notice that Abraham will display the character of God into the world. And notice how he does it starting with Sodom and Gomorrah, the place of darkness. The men, the two messengers would enter into Sodom and Gomorrah at night as darkness is coming. And so it's all a literary device to tell you that this is a wicked place. And what does Abraham do? Does Abraham say, you should definitely just firebomb them. Firebomb them. Go for it, God. It's like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, whenever, you know, you're playing that. Uh, I don't know if you play that. I mostly just watch it on Stranger Things, I promise. Um, no, you know, like, what is your move? And your first instinct is always to say, fireball, right? Does Abraham call for fireball? No, he says this. Um, he draws near and says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He starts to, it says that he approaches God or he comes, draws near to God. The language of that elsewhere in the Old Testament is actually used for prayer. So what happens is, is Abraham starts to pray for the wicked. And he starts here, says, would you not spare the city for 50 righteous? 50 righteous would have been half the city about. Um, cities are much different uh, back then than they are now. Cities are probably more like fortified little villas or villages with uh, or like a Pueblo-looking thing if you're in the Southwest. You know, New Mexico represent. Love New Mexico. Um, uh, you know, and so so that's kind of what the way that they are. You know, and so he's like, like hey, if half the city is righteous, God's like, all right, 
If 45 are righteous, God's like, all right. But notice his appeal. Notice Abraham is not appealing to uh, his own works and his own ability, that he has some sort of merit with God. His appeal is actually to God himself in his justice, in his mercy, in his kindness. He does not appeal to works that Abraham's got. Abraham doesn't have any kind of collateral to offer God. And so he advocates, he draws near, he's present with him. And he does so humbly. Notice the way he speaks. Do not be angry with me, Lord. And he continues to investigate. He continues to pry until we see that maybe even if the logic were to get down, he gets down to 10. But everybody knows that if he got down to one, if there was one righteous in whose righteousness could transfer to the many, could it be done? That's the logic. God would do it. He would spare them. And so we see advocates for justice and that's who we're to be. We're to be people who are blessed in a relationship with God to appeal to God's mercy and justice on behalf of wicked sinners. Or as my wife says, you know, what should we do with all those little dirty sinners out there? Pray for them, especially the one staring you back in the mirror. Pray for them. Confess. Walk with them. Call out on their behalf. Intercede for them. Point to God's justice and mercy all the time. And when you're praying, ask God to be merciful because that is who he is. That's the type of people we're to be. Annie Glenn died of 100, at 100 years old, five days ago. Annie Glenn is the wife of John Glenn, the great astronaut. The beauty about Annie Glenn is that she didn't really speak much. And the reason why she didn't speak much whenever her husband was a famous astronaut is because she struggled with a stutter. For years, she could not even answer the phone to talk to her own children. Her greatest fear in life, she said, was, was uh, to have the, the uh, NASA call to tell her that her, some terrible accident had, done, had happened to her husband. She'd pick up the phone and not be able to say hello and that they would just say, well, uh, I guess nobody's there and hang up the phone and not be able to tell her something terrible has happened to her husband. And so she lived in fear with this stutter day in and day out. It started when she was about four years old when she came up, was asked before the class to give a presentation and no words came out. Just the low stutter. And so she was fearful and traumatized the rest of her life until one day she was determined that that something else would happen. She went to a camp. And at that camp for three months, they rehabilitated her ability to speak. And when she was leaving and she was ready to get out, she called her children on the phone and they heard her voice. For the rest of her life, Annie Glenn, who was blessed with the ability to speak after suffering for so many years with a stutter, used that blessing to bless others. 
she became an advocate for those with speech impairments. And that's the type of people we're to be. We're to be the in-between people, people who live in a new creation, in a new way, ushering in a new way to a world that is dying, in between the dying world and the way of life. Between death and life, we stand in between and we intercede and we pray for them like Abraham did. So we need to ask ourselves, where are the dying places that we need to call out for, that we need to pray for, that we need to enter into and care for them because we see Jesus as our high priest, the one who actually can identify with us going before the Lord and continually interceding with the scars in his hands from his own righteousness, the scars in his hands that pleads for justice because he took on injustice. So where do we go? We go just like Abraham to the God of justice. Notice that he investigates. He doesn't leave sin unpunished, but it uses this rhetorical like an anthropomorphism. That is a real nerdy word that means that it uses human-like language for God, right? And so notice it says that God goes down and he investigates. He's building his case. There's an outcry. And what does Abraham do? He advocates for a bunch of sinners. And he does it by appealing to this God of justice. God doesn't leave it unpunished. Whenever someone is forgiven, especially, let's imagine this. Imagine you have student loan debt. Every, every 20 to 30 something's like, yeah, buddy. Um, yeah, imagine you have student loan debt. And one day... The bank says your loan has been forgiven. Well, if you don't pay the actual student loan debt, who's paying for it? It's not that it's just wiped off the books. It's rather that whoever is forgiving it is the person who has to pay it. The bank would have to pay it. Or um, Maybe the government saying, we're going to forgive student loan debt. Do you know who pays that? The people who pay taxes are the people who pay the student loan debt. That's the way it works. Okay? And so that is the logic. And so for your sins to be forgiven, for justice to happen, somebody has to take the justice on themselves. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. Abram intercedes for a bunch of sinners and the logic is, is if there was one righteous, is there any way that they could, he could take the injustice? Could he take their sins and cover up for them? The truth is, is that one righteous person would have to suffer for the rest of them. Jesus is the high priest. He represents his people, his sacrifice, his righteous sacrifice of himself covers for the unrighteousness of others. It covers their sin. Jesus prays, but he also gives his life and he is destroyed so that others can be saved. His kindness, his goodness ought to lead to our repentance for us to say that we are sinners. We have carried out misdeeds of injustice in our hearts and in our hands. And we know that we've done that because the marks and scars of injustice are all over the body of Jesus Christ. 
Many people have repented of sin, but not many people have repented of sin because you're a jerk. Your spouse is not going to repent of sin because you're a jerk to them. And neither are your children. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Abraham calls out for mercy for a bunch of sinners. And so God's people are to be ones who call out for this dying world because we know that we were once dead and now we're made alive in Christ. Johnny Lee Clary is the man who took over for Samuel Bowers as the second grand wizard of the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He was engaged to be in a debate with a man named Wade Watts. Wade Watts was a leader of the NAACP. He's a pastor, and he was a man who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. and knew that it was God's kindness and mercy that leads to repentance. And so what did he do? He advocated for Christian Love as the means to bring equality. And so they have this radio debate. They come together. Wade Watts of the NAACP, Johnny Lee Clary, Grand Wizard of the, K- of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. They come together. Wade Watts, his first reaction is to sh- stick out his hand and to shake the hand of Johnny Lee Clary. They touch for a second, Wade, or, and Johnny Lee Clary pulls his hand back. Wade Watts says, Johnny Lee Clary, I love you, and Jesus loves you. And at pulling his hand back, Johnny Lee Clary looks at him, and Wade Watts responds, don't worry, it doesn't come off. And so he's kind of thrown off. They have a debate. They end up talking. Wade Watts at the end, who has 13 kids, is... Uh, has, has his, uh, goes to his wife, and Johnny Lee Clary ends up meeting him in the back, and Wade Watts introduces his wife to Johnny Lee Clary and a little girl held in the hands of his wife. Mrs. Watts holding this child, is that's their niece is who he's holding, but this niece is the child of a, uh, of a white, white woman and a black a black man who is one of their children or, or like grandchildren. And both of them want to give up. They're like, we don't want none of this. And so Wade Watts is caring for this child as his own. And there's this little baby who starts to smile at Johnny Lee Clary. And Wade Watts looks at Johnny Lee Clary and is like, Johnny Lee, how can you hate this little baby? And Johnny Lee Clary, deep in his heart, says, I can't. It starts to believe that Jesus does love him, but he goes his own way. And so what does is, what is Johnny Lee Clary do? He starts to intimidate Wade Watts. And so he's standing outside his house, and they're all dressed up. Wade Watts calls the sheriff. The sheriff does nothing because he's paid for by the KKK in the county. And so Wade Watts comes outside and yells, It's too early for trick-or-treating. Come back in October. And it comes and walks back in. So two days later or so, the KKK show back up, and they are burning a cross outside of Wade Watts' house. 
And then Wade Watts walks out and asks, did you bring enough hot dogs and marshmallows for your barbecue? If you don't, I've got enough. If you get hot, I've got enough iced tea in here for y'all to come get some. And then they try to burn his church down a few weeks later. And, John, and it was unsuccessful. So Johnny Lee disguises his voice and calls Wade Watts and says, Hello, Johnny. You know, you don't know me. Uh, it, it, we're, we're watching you and we're going to get you. Wade Watts responds, Hello, Johnny. It's so nice to hear you, to think a guy like you takes the time to call me. This is insane. And so one day, then, we, Wade Watts is at Pete's Barbecue. 30 Klansmen, including Johnny Lee Clary, walk into the place and they tell Wade Watts, you're not welcome here. You got to get out. In fact, Wade, anything you do to that chicken, we're going to do to you. Wade Watts picks up that chicken and kisses it. Everyone starts snickering and they have to leave because everyone couldn't handle laughing anymore. Over time, Johnny Lee Cleary would confess his sin, his selfishness, and believe that God actually loves him. You see, Wade Watts didn't kill him. He didn't firebomb him. No, he prayed for him and showed him Jesus' love. They would become friends. Johnny Lee Cleary would leave the KKK, and a few years later, Wade Watts would be dying in his hospital room from Parkinson's, and Johnny Lee Cleary would see him. After Wade Watts died later that evening, after Johnny Lee saw him, Johnny Lee would finally, due to Wade Watts, what he did to that chicken, would give him a kiss, fulfilling the promise. You see, at the cross, Jesus is God's kiss to the world. See, at the cross, that is the justice that all our sins cry out for. And it's also the mercy of God for us sinners. And it meet in the person of Jesus Christ and they kiss. It is both his just judgments and his mercy meeting there. There in the bleeding, beaten body of Jesus, justice for sin and mercy for sinners comes into view. Jesus intercedes with scarred hands, pleading mercy because he took the justice that we all deserve. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, I pray that we as your people would reflect Jesus into the world that we would have the ability and the power of Jesus to suffer injustice for the sake of the world. That we as your people, Lord, would call out for justice and equality in places that there are none. Lord, would we be the voice to the voiceless? Would we be help to the helpless? Would we follow Jesus in the renewal of all things? Would we be people who bring gospel healing to every broken place? Lord, be merciful to us. Strengthen us. Help us to confess our sins. Help us to be more like Jesus, to not run away from the world, to not shun the world, to not look down our noses at the world but to pray and call out for the world. 
Because Jesus intercedes continually for us. Lord, help us to be transformed by the good news of the gospel. We ask, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.